Even better than I was the yeah. last time, baby. Ooh, 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 ooh. We back. I'm And we back, 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 and we back. Hello, and welcome to the Versus Podcast. My name is Steven Sloan, and I'm a new media mogul. And joining me live from the nation's capital, my very own brother Mick. How you doing, bro, bro? Good. I, I liked how I liked how casually you just threw in the new title of, of the podcast. Yeah. Hey, come on! It's this is the way it works now. You just kind of gotta roll with it. It's it's 2017, so it's a new year, and uh, it's a new it's a new name for the podcast. Yeah, you wanna go, you wanna talk about why we're rebranding, as it were. The reason that we're rebranding is quite simple. Uh, no matter how many times I tried to explain how to find this podcast on iTunes, it was still really difficult. In part because we used a number. And it's hard to, and I, honestly, I couldn't even remember whether it was one, like the numeral or like the word. So I didn't even yeah. know how to tell people to do it. Yeah. So we opt for an, in some ways, equally confusing moniker uh, by picking the word versus so that, you know, it is the full word as opposed to the abbreviation VS. I, I still think that's easier. No, for sure. So yeah, that's, that's what's happening. It's a new year, new podcast, and we actually have a new name. So don't turn off your your phone. Yeah, you're listening to the right thing. It's still us. It's just we're no longer the one-on-one podcast. Uh, we've we are the versus podcast. So what's funny is that I bet that I bet that several people who listen to this podcast wouldn't have noticed the difference in name. Probably. I I, probably I don't know not. if our brand is that powerful. No. Yeah. It's a, you know there's some shirts floating around, but. Uh, not really. We don't have any merchandise or anything. So we, yeah, we we pretty much have zero. We, footprint, we do. So. We do have a shirt. It's called write. It's called write the name of this podcast on a piece of paper and tape it to a shirt. You know, we're talking about new media today, bro, bro. We're we're pushing the boundaries of what what a podcast is and what podcast apparel is. Yeah. So so media branding is actually uh, we we really settled into a good segue into what we're talking about today. So. I, like most of America, have been paying a lot of ten- attention to the news lately, and that that was probably true for me going back a decade, but more so than ever, it's news has kind of become an addiction for this country. I, I'm not sure what caused that. I don't think anything important happened in the past month that that provoked this, but so it's we basically wanted to talk about how we get news in this country and we wanted to kind of divide it along the lines of sort of the cable news giants who dominated the scene for a pretty long time basically since their inception and uh with cnn kind of representing that type of of media group old media if you will yeah and then and then buzzfeed as sort of a represent a representation of sort of new media and internet journalism and and how it's pretty crazy to me that BuzzFeed provides news at all, given that their brand before yeah. they started doing news was cat videos and quizzes about the show Friends. I don't mean to disparage that at all. I think it's, if anything, it's very indicative of the direction that we're going. Uh, and so I think at the core, what we're kind of trying to dig into here is how did the sort of older media fail us and is there a chance for them to win the public trust back? And then when we look at how more and more people are getting news from websites that aren't necessarily even known primarily for news, uh, what that could mean going forward. Because the reality is, you know, we're going to inevitably talk about, uh, talk about Trump on this podcast because he's mm-hmm. so important to the news of today. And I think the way that the media chooses across any type of media outlet, how they choose to cover his presidency is going to be a really important choice that's going to really affect their standing, I would say. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think that the news media provided a lot of problems to our political culture before Trump. And it's going to continue to be an important, it's going to be an important issue long after he's gone, assuming that we still have a media uh, after the Trump presidency. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think it's important to note that um, one of the prevailing attitudes about quote unquote Trumpism uh, seems to be that it's like new or that it, it just sort of appeared out of nowhere. And I think it's worth mentioning, like you said, that the sort of rise of what I'll call uh, authoritarian populism or, or nationalist populism uh, in this country over the past, I don't know, two years, year and a half is really symptomatic of a lot of the things we're going to talk about, not so much sort of causing them. You know, the the way that quote-unquote old media covered politics for so long helped to breed. I, I mean, it's not certainly the only factor or even the driving factor, but I do think that some people, I think, believe that Trump kind of created the way the media failed us. And I think actually what we kind of want to get into is how, in fact, he was less creating these loopholes, but rather exploiting them in a way that people just hadn't really before him. And and that's really been the case, I would argue, for his entire career. You know, he's always he's always in all of his endeavors had a really innate sense of how news media works and how the entertainment media works, too in terms of his his control of tabloids and his work on The Apprentice, he's always had a really good innate sense of how that is structured and how it can be exploited to his advantage. And I think what the issue is, is not that Trump transformed the way that we cover and consume news. I think that the issue is that Trump, uh, that Trump had a very easy time muddying the water in a news infrastructure that wasn't designed to handle him. Because because the, the news, a, a lot of the news networks, and I think that this is a good way to sort of pivot directly into our conversation of CNN and its ilk, they're not necessarily prepared or designed to thrive in a situation where factual arguments can be so disputed. Yeah, well, they're, they're all about entertainment value and pithiness and speed of reporting you know it's not to say that they're a purely entertainment based uh, endeavor but the reality is that the way you get people to watch is giving them a reason to watch and so things like fact checking things like drilling down onto a point that a politician isn't really answering on those aren't entertaining things those aren't things that sell so yeah I think you're right I think that the sort of structure as it's as it exists wasn't built to do the sort of hard work and sort of aggressive fact checking that this campaign required yeah and and sir what what i think is funny is that uh there's often there's often a joke that your successes that someone's successes are usually overshadowed by their mistakes and someone can do a whole lot of things well but they'll only be remembered for their failure uh, I mean, honestly, sorry, Atlanta, but the Falcons kind of come to mind. How? No, well, well, no. It, but, File but that under too soon. But it's a great example of what I'm talking about. I would say because they had an awesome season and they near and they were blowing out the eventual Super Bowl champions. But all they'll be remembered for is their losses. I think mm-hmm. that that principle yeah. can be extended to a great extent to uh, to the rest of our culture and the way we consume culture. But I don't think that's true for news media. I think if anything, I think TV networks are often excused for their mistakes. A great example is one of the most one of the most salient things of a news network getting something wrong was when CNN in 2013 after the Boston Marathon bombing reported that they caught uh, that they caught the bomber when they didn't that should have arguably been credibility destroying for CNN but i mean here we are in 2017 and they're still chugging along although and, that being said i i mean to say that CNN has credibility i feel like is a bit of a stretch i think the thing that we're sort of running into is you're right. I, I, I think that there is an element of news media, specifically television news media, gets a lot of chances, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's because they've come to a point where we just sort of acknowledge that they have to exist. You know, we don't necessarily... It's almost like the sort of American two-party system. People are unhappy with it in some places. You know, it bothers them that they don't have more options but ultimately everybody sort of acknowledges that this is a thing that has to exist and so we're willing to we're willing to concede 
to some of its failings because we just sort of know that this is and that, and I think to go even further I think that there's sort of an implicit understanding that if we're going to value speed in news media the most which like it or not is what we as a culture and as a population have decided is most important is who can get me the information fastest I think that we've kind of implicitly acknowledged the fact that mistakes will be made if that's what we value but what what's interesting is you and I in the sort of the social circles we run in probably know a vast majority of the people that we talk to on a regular basis probably don't have a ton of respect for CNN. Yeah, more so than anything. I mean, I think ease of use is probably in there. I think sort of coming to where you are is in there. But I, I it wouldn't surprise me if the most important reason why old media, quote unquote, has sort of died over the past year or so, it feels like, you know, they, they feel like they're less relevant, is because this is the first time we've really seen, uh, and <laughs> we told ourselves we wouldn't talk about Trump, but it's hard not to discuss this because of the things he did. And one of the things that he did that I think is important in, in this conversation is that he presented an alternative. You know, he basically said, no, the news media as it's constructed doesn't have to exist this way. You don't have to get your information from the sort of old networks. Uh, and it showed, I think, how willing uh, people were to quickly drop the old information structures because it was so poorly regarded. You know, as soon as there was another option, people took it. And I think that's important to note. So this actually sets up a really good uh, a really good conversation that what that we should have when we talk about news media and especially news networks and that's the question of access and how important it is and what networks are willing to do to get it. So I, I think the perfect example of that is if someone if someone like Trump can have a, a social media brand that's so powerful and can have just an entire country even whether you follow him or not, sort of hanging on every word of his tweets, it cuts out the middleman in a certain sense uh, and makes it so that CNN and you know, Fox News and MSNBC, they're no longer the mouthpiece of the political class. They are an option that the political class can use, but they can also just reach out directly. And I think as social media becomes mm -hmm. more prevalent, I think that problem's only going to grow. And I think that the issue that that has caused is it's meant that networks are, will increasingly do whatever it takes to get ratings and to get access. This is something that we saw CNN playing every single Trump speech in its entirety was a great example. And it's, it's equal parts understanding that his speeches, because there was always the possibility that he'd say something completely outlandish, were, were must-see TV to a large number of people. But also there was a certain extent of kind of currying favor because he's such a ratings machine for them that losing access to him and to his speeches and to his rallies was a genuinely fearful proposition for CNN's leadership. And that's an issue that I think is difficult to reckon with in general because I think it's funny because when people talk about publicly owned media that's funded by the government, the idea of sort of state-sponsored television uh, like they have in North Korea kind of easily comes to mind. But what's funny is that when in the culture that we live in where news is commodified and where ratings and access are the only things that matter, there is a lot of money to be made in being uh, in brazenly defending the current administration. You know, this is something that Fox News has been extremely successful at. And that I think, to a certain extent, MSNBC kind of wanted to be with Obama. But I mm -hmm. think that their audience wasn't quite as hungry for that. Yeah, and uh, that sort of takes you down a, a thorny road. But I, I do think you're right in the sense that we are, we are very quick to be distrustful of government overreach in this country. Um, and, you know, there are plenty of examples. North Korea is a great one. Uh, even things like Russian state television today, right now, as well. There are reasons to be fearful, but I don't think we think about the sort of cyclical nature of these things, where if you allow too little uh, reach, you know, if, if things become purely about what uh, generates capital, as it were, 
uh, I think you're right. You get into the same problems. You know, CNN is now in a position where politicians, and this is not just Trump, have so much leverage because there are so many other alternative streams of access and information that they can basically completely dictate the terms upon which they're covered by these news sources. And in order to stay alive, news sources have to make a lot of concessions, as you talk about, you know, especially when you have a president who is so willing to freeze out anybody who doesn't cover him positively. You know, that leaves anybody who chooses to sort of push against the party in power. There's no uh, financial imperative to do that because they're going to lose viewers and they're going to lose access and they're not going to get any sort of like smug satisfaction from being the guys who go after the president. And so they're left in this really awkward situation where there's no real incentive to quote unquote do good journalism. But obviously we can't continue down the path we're going because this sort of uh, willingness to cover quote unquote fake news or what you would call alternative facts. There's a, there's a great deal of financial imperative to do that. Uh, and we sort of have to figure out what do we, how do we sort of go from here? And I, I wonder if it's maybe the abandonment of kind of the traditional journalistic models, you know, the CNNs, the, the Foxes, if we need to sort of let them die and see what comes up in their place. One of, one of my favorite, one of our favorite, I should say, our favorite political commentators right now is uh, John Favreau, who's one of the guys from Crooked Media. And he said, and he said in an interview back in, I think, October or November, he talked about how in the election cycle, when given the choice between truth and balance, the media, especially the broadcast networks, chose balance in every situation. And I think, and I think you just outlined to a really good extent why they felt the need to make that choice and why they felt the need to cover both sides so aggressively, even at the expense of really shining a bright light on some of the things that the Trump campaign was doing. I mean, frankly, in the expense of telling the truth, you know, th- this isn't just they would go harder after one candidate than the other because there were some small holes. I mean, it left them in a situation where they had to present one thing as equally bad as another when there was no reason to believe or no proof that that was the case. And so you know, it, it's more than just kind of shining a light on one side or the other. This is like the sort of ethical gymnastics you have to do to make these things seem equal i would say veers even so far into your choosing balance over giving people the right story i think it's pretty easy to see two sides of an issue as equivalent if you don't take a lot of time to dive into the issue and that's something Mm -hmm. that that we saw networks like cnn do all the time you know a common refrain that we saw throughout the campaign would be uh, would be Trump would insult Hillary about something and then in his speech Hillary would respond about it because she felt like she had to or else appear weak and the headline would be you know Trump and Clinton spar over racism or mm-hmm. over deplorables and and the result is the result are headlines and short snippet stories that aren't even remotely insightful all you know is that there are two people and they disagree and they they fight tooth and nail on every issue, and it all just co- contributes to a really corrosive culture where a lot of people, uh, including I, I know a lot of people even in D.C., which is as liberal as it gets, and you would expect to to be a hardcore Clinton uh, constituency. I know a lot of people in this area who would say both people are awful, and all mm-hmm. they do is fight, and this is not an election between people of good faith. And that's, you know, that's true to a certain extent, but I think the degree to which acting as though the two candidates were of similar integrity and that their campaigns were of similar integrity or lack thereof was a real problem. And it's the type of thing that the news media really bought into because there's nothing partisan or controversial about saying, here's these two people and they fought all day. Instead... It's it, it kind of everybody wins because they don't take a stance. They don't have to fact check anybody and they can display sensational content or conflict 
which is a very valuable thing for ratings. Yeah, this is something that I think, if you don't mind, is worth diving into a little bit. Because I think the issue of stance is a very important one. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you look at sort of Fox News, MSNBC are kind of counterweights, ideologically speaking, right? Yeah. The, The thing that worries me is that the news media and for this i'll say groups like cnn like um like nbc like the sort of quote-unquote unpartisan or nonpartisan media are so fearful of appearing to be partisan because because partisanship especially now is viewed as this and rightly so deeply toxic um sort of mire that we're all in Mm-hmm. The thing that worries and frustrates me is that they are so obsessed with appearing unbiased that when the facts show a bias, and this, I mean, this goes in either direction. This is not, it happened more often towards Trump uh, because of sort of the nature of his candidacy. But there's there are certain situations where the left is unquestionably wrong. And presenting the facts of that does not make you biased. It's just, that is the way things are. You know, I, I'll point out... Um, I hate to use another sort of left versus right situation, but uh, looking at the Betsy DeVos confirmation, anybody who watched that hearing almost to a person said this woman has demonstrated not even base competency for her position, right? Would you say that's probably a fair assessment for a lot of people? Uh, Yeah, well, well, what I would say is that I think I think that you would see I think she's the nominee maybe that we've ever seen who the most people of her nominating party or of her appointing party would argue against her credentials. Right. And so the sort of way to cover that, I would say, is you have to talk about the fact that she didn't understand basic educational theory. You know, she wasn't able to uh, discuss um, intelligently about pretty common educational issues and debates. That's how you cover that story. But what I saw when I read was politically contentious confirmation hearings of Betsy DeVos, because it's the same sort of situation. You know, it when you when you position something like her confirmation hearing as just another example of the Democrats and the Republicans not being able to agree on anything, not only is that not accurate, but you are providing an artificial baseline that next time you come around somebody who's even less qualified than Betsy DeVos, you can look back and say, well, that was basically partisan squabbling, so why isn't this now? There were a whole lot of very newsworthy things in that, uh, and headline caliber things in that confirmation hearing that would have been viable. But yeah, you're right. It was always about two diametrically opposed sides in conflict. And so a lot of headlines I saw were things like, Democratic senators grill DeVos or like DeVos like faces contentious questions from Democratic like Senator Al Franken. And so and yeah, and, and, and it's the safe way to go. And I think it's and I think it's just CNN and and NBC and MSNBC and, you know, to a to a lesser extent Fox, because I think Fox is smart enough to know where their bread is buttered now. Um, I think that they're sort of still trying to get a feel of what the best way to cover news in a way that appeals to the largest group of people is when, you know, I, I was always confused. I was always confused why news anchors, especially on news sources that were recognized as slightly more left leaning things like NBC were so were so afraid to really dig in and attack Trump. And now I I'm understand, obviously, that it's easy for me sitting on my couch to be like, well, why don't you just hit this dude with some follow-up questions? I'm sure he's a pretty hard guy to pin down in an interview. But mm-hmm. I almost feel like the journalist who could, get, who could get Trump trapped in a lie in the biggest way would be someone who could come out ahead in this election and in coverage. I think you're seeing that with Jake Tapper. Jake Tapper has sort of been lifted up as like the guy who goes after trump and yeah i i think that that's been beneficial to him on balance from a sort of career perspective yeah and it but it it took it took a really long time for Mm -hmm. tapper to get there yeah and so and so I, i think it's interesting that they were so hesitant to dig in on that and i think it's because they're sort of trying to feel out what the best way to to cover this is and how do they appeal to the largest number of people because 
we we are you know it's not a hot take to say that we've become increasingly polarized as a political climate and that's not going to go away and when we talk about new media in a few minutes uh it's going to be really clear why but before we really get into that i kind of want to talk about facts and truth because because yeah. this is really important and yeah. it's it's become surprisingly common for people to kind of flippantly say this is like a post-truth world this is post-fact and i think that a distinction i think that we failed to make a distinction between facts and factual arguments a great example is antonio brown so Going into this season, when I actually think we talked about it on this podcast, when we did like a football podcast, we were talking about who the best number one pick in fantasy football should be. And I said Antonio Brown, and you expressed fear that Antonio Brown would be injured. And I presented a really, I think a really strong case for why you shouldn't worry about Antonio Brown being injured, which is... He's never he's never missed a significant number of games with injury in any season. He's never had a major injury, like something like a torn ACL or anything like that. And guys around him, other contenders for that top spot, guys like Adrian Peterson and like Julio Jones and Odell Beckham did. And the assertion I made was based on all of those facts, it was extremely unlikely that Antonio Brown would get injured. Now... If Antonio Brown had blown out his knee on the first play of the season, would I have been wrong? No, because technically my statement that it was extremely unlikely would still hold. But if that happened, there's no question I would have said to you, I'm sorry, I was wrong. It was wrong to pick him. It wasn't wrong. Yeah, there's a difference between a, a factual argument that is rooted in accurate sort of information, but no matter how many facts you have, you can't predict the future. And so like, just because your conclusion was incorrect because Antonio Brown got injured, then you would still have made a correct argument based on good facts that just happened because the world is so random to have been proven wrong. Taking it further and extending it into a political realm, if we talk about, I mean, you you could argue that Hillary Clinton losing to Trump after so many experts said that she wouldn't would kind of be like the equivalent of Antonio Brown getting injured. An extremely unlikely but nonetheless possible outcome. And I was... I saw a big thread on Facebook of a comment thread. And I basically, I basically never comment on those because I just try to stay out of that as much as possible. But in this instance, I was seeing people on both sides of the political divide talking about how polls are kind of, how polls were so hopelessly wrong in this past election, when the reality is they really weren't. So the, the best way I would say to illustrate that is that Hillary Clinton was projected to win by about three and a half points in the national popular vote. Mm -hmm. And she actually won by a little less than three, which is a very small difference that's perfectly explainable by the polls margin of error. The same was true for places like in Florida and North Carolina and even somewhere like Pennsylvania, which were pretty close uh, 50-50 or around 50-50 or even 60-40 expected to go to Clinton but acknowledged could go either way it, it shouldn't be totally shocking that any of those individual states went the opposite way that we expected what was remarkable and why the Trump victory was painted as so unlikely was what it really was was a bunch of little unlikely things adding up into one gigantic unlikely thing. Yeah. So Clinton was more likely to win states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Florida. And the polls were all wrong within an individually reasonable margin that that when they added up came to a massive tidal wave of an upset victory. Yeah, and this is something that I think is sort of worth going into a little further when it comes to sort of I think one of the arguments is that like oh data was wrong or like this is what happens when you trust experts too much you know experts don't know any like any more than any of us right Mm -hmm. yeah 
this I think is a very dangerous place to go, especially give now, given given what has sort of transpired over the past month. Um, experts will be wrong. Experts experts will be wrong less often than people who aren't, but they will still be wrong. And the thing that we can't do is look at a situation where they happen to be wrong in a very big way in a lot of directions, as you said. You know, there was. It was all small errors that added up to one large effect. I think that's a very good way to put it. Yeah, for yeah, for want for a nail, the war was lost. Yeah, and and that's not to say that you know, quote unquote, like big data is something that we should embrace all the time. You know, there is an art to this. There is there are points where you need to sort of look beyond the data. Um, you know, people talk about sort of places that are difficult to pull, um, unexpected turnout numbers. Uh, you don't want to lean entirely on experts or on data or facts, but I don't think we want to be in the business of like limiting our access to highly skilled, highly specialized people or information just because there was this one time that it didn't work out. Yeah. I, I, th- I think that we just need to be critical to a certain extent. So like, for example, I mean, a great example, uh, uh, the Princeton election consortium, this guy, Sam Wang, he had Clinton's pr- percentage of winning as, I think, 99% on election day, whereas Nate Silver in 538, who it's worth acknowledging, we should have trusted more than Sam Wang anyway, because he has a longer track record yeah. of success. He had, he had Clinton's chances of winning, I think, at about 65% on election day, which is a huge, which is a very powerful advantage. But that still meant that there was a 35% chance that she would lose. That's not unreasonable. Um, yeah, that's and, not and, nothing. And what I think is so interesting, it's really comparable to sports because probability in sports is such a big, is such a big deal. It's, it happens all the time, for example, in football when we're trying to talk about should a team like go for it on fourth down here? Well, if they don't get it, that doesn't mean it was the wrong choice. And so in sports, in part because our sports media culture is so data-driven now, and, and this is the same case in business, too, where process is valued to a certain or to a great extent over outcome in a lot of places. And they want to see people making decisions for the right reasons, even if acknowledging the fact that sometimes decisions made for the right reasons are completely wrong. But for some reason, that has become completely unacceptable in politics. And I think that the news media, in particular places like CNN and like MSNBC, where they sort of had to reckon with the fact that they were so wrong, I think that they've really doubled down on the hysteria that a lot of, that a lot of people experienced when a lot of the data mines were wrong about this election. They haven't tried to calm people down because I don't think that people, I don't think that people writ large wanted to be calm. Well, yeah, and this is something actually, it's, they considered it an equally drastic example. Um, I was listening to uh, the Ringer's Watch podcast where they were discussing something like this, but um, I think the example that they used bears itself out here as well. Um, the sort of, in the wake of World War One, and to a certain extent also in the wake of World War II, um, an event so catastrophic and again like the these are not apple these are apples and oranges like the election of trump as difficult as it's going to be for a lot of people and as much as people are going to struggle you know we're not talking about millions uh, in terms of the costs of lives right but the the point that I'm, i'd like to make is that in the wake of those great sort of events people sort of were so shaken by the culture that created those events that they looked at it and said, we have to do something different. Something clearly has to have been broken in order for this to happen. Sorry, what was the first example? Uh, this is World War One and World War II. Uh, yeah. You see it in the sort of modernist bent right. of the sort of 20th century. Uh, this is in music, in art, you see it everywhere. And it was a response, a lot of people believe, to this sense that, okay, the way we used to do things created this event. So therefore, we need to do something that is completely different. I think yeah, that in the wake of Trump, it being such a a strange event and a uh, surprise for so many people, and for a lot of people, an equally sort of tragic event as it was surprising because of sort of the rhetoric of the campaign. 
um, once again from both sides. Um, I think that the Democrats painted uh, Trump presidency as an apocalyptic event. And obviously his rhetoric suggests concern. So because it was such a shock to the system, I think people immediately reacted. And we're still, I mean, it's only been less than a quarter of a year since Election Day. We're still very close to it. And I think we are still in a place where we saw something unexpected and for a lot of people very bad happen. And so we are desperately searching for any other way to conduct ourselves because clearly the way we conducted ourselves based on polling, based on data, didn't work. And so mm-hmm. I think that's more what we're seeing than sort of a, the media chasing the populace who I agree with you doesn't want to be comforted right now or doesn't yeah. want to be talked down from their concern. But I think I think it's a wider sense. I think even the news media is looking at this and saying, how do we get this so wrong? We have to do everything different differently. I actually think that new media and um, and, you know, Internet journalism uh, and blog based journalism factors into that idea really well, because there's a pretty huge opportunity f- there for them where people don't feel like they can trust the major news networks anymore. And with the major news networks doing, honestly, they're not doing a great job at winning people's trust back. And so I think that there's a tremendous opportunity here where the way that people get news and where they get the majority of their news could be remade in the future. And I think internet news publications have a real chance there. But there's an issue there and that issue is that it, if people follow new media sites like sites like BuzzFeed or like more extreme examples are you know U.S. Uncut on the left and Breitbart on the right, we're not going to fix any of the problems that caused this in the first place. Yeah, I think to go actually back to your one of my biggest concerns about new media, as you say goes actually back to your Antonio Brown example. I heard that and I had a feeling. I said, I have a feeling that Antonio Brown is going to get injured. And so what I did was I went out and I actually did this. I looked for any proof that I could find of my thesis, my initial thesis. And so I saw things like regression to the mean or an average NFL player has an injury in their career at least once, right? And I was able to construct for myself an argument that had legs to stand on logically, even though it wasn't founded in reality. And the problem with new media is when you're dealing with the sort of monolithic journalistic culture of television news, you get one story with some shading on it, right? You know, maybe you find one that's a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right. Fox News, MSNBC notwithstanding. If If I can interrupt you for just a second, another caveat to add to that is not only is it shaded less extremely, but it's also the same story that you can assume a large number of people are seeing. You know, CNN is not as relevant as it once was, and it's not as respected as it once was. But their CNN breaking news Twitter account still has 45 million followers. I looked this up before that. And so it's the the baseline of information, while somewhat flawed, is still the same that a lot of people are getting. But go on. Yeah, and so my point is that the internet is such a revolutionary force. But one of the things is that it widens the pool of access. That's on both sides. More people can get information, but more people can spread information. And the more people who can spread information, the more viewpoints you're going to get. And the more likelihood that you are going to find the set of facts, not just arguments, that agree with your opinion. And the problem with new media is there is so little regulation within it. I don't mean government regulation. I mean within itself. You know, the government doesn't really regulate all that much about uh, television news. It kind of does it itself. There is so little internal regulation of the sort of quote-unquote new media space. Oh, there's none. Right, that people are saying, okay, well, if I, for example, to bring up uh, the, the child pornography ring being run out of a pizza place, that was not true. I'm kind of stealing this from the oh, Flash yeah, Forward yeah. podcast. Com- comic pizza. Yeah. yeah. Somebody said, if I run this story, I will get eyeballs, which means I will get ad revenue, which means I will make money. Mm-hmm. They didn't look at, well, maybe this isn't true. They went purely from how do I get more readers? 
and they found an audience and the audience found the information that they wanted they believed that hillary clinton was corrupt they believed she was genuinely evil and they found a site that proved that true and the thing that we have to figure out and obviously we're not going to solve that on our podcast you know that's for much smarter and more dedicated people to do but how do we get a situation where people can access anything but they only want to access things that are true and verifiable and accurate well the thing is because i i don't think people even necessarily want things that are true right now i don't think that people want things that challenge their previously held notions uh, so, so a good example. I saw something on I saw a news story that circulated on Facebook that said uh, that said that there was no rec- that they turned off the recorder during Trump's conversation with Vladimir Putin in the Oval Office on the mm-hmm. phone, and it, it came from raw story, which means it's dubious from a source standpoint, and I have no idea whether that story is true or not. I didn't see it anywhere else from any other sources, so I assumed not. But there's a bunch of people, I'm sure, who thought that story was real. Yeah, because when you when you exist in sort of the margins, because that's the other complicating thing. It's easy to see, okay, this information is blatantly false. I looked it up. There are more sources, more trusted sources, that are directly refuting this, right? Yeah. But what you're talking about is a lot more complicated. We don't know whether they turned the recorder off uh, in that in that conversation. You can present it one way or the other, but ultimately we don't have that information. And when you exist in this margin where it's not necessarily provably false, but it's not provably true, a lot of the time people's biases take over. And by the way, it's really counterproductive. If if you're someone who is if you're someone who's opposed to Trump you're not doing yourself or your cause any favors by relying on the on those types of sources. The reason being, uh, one of my favorite one of my favorite reporters is someone named Julia Yathi, who writes for the Atlantic now, and she grew up in Russia, and a lot of her work is about Putin's regime in Russia, and she talked about on a podcast I listened to how the best weapon that someone like Putin and Trump, you know, not not to say that Trump is Putin because they're not equivalents yeah. at this point. Uh, but what they both do is they're both very successful at using a situation where the factual waters have been muddied. And so once you can sort of muddy the water to the point where people never know whether a story is true or not, then the game is yours. And I think that was a really valuable assessment that I don't think people necessarily know. I think that people kind of, people like to read news that matches their perception because it makes them feel better and it makes them feel like a lot of people think the way that they do. But and that to be things, fair, we, we, are not a, we are not innocent in that. I would say oh. we both tend to, it's important to us that we be as unbiased as possible, but our bias, you know, we don't want to talk as if we're like in this ivory tower and we have all the answers. Like we oh, both no, fall prey to this too. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, no, absolutely not. Like I, I probably should have been clearer about that from the yeah, beginning. Yeah. I, I fall into this trap too. There mm. have been instances where I've seen an article that wasn't legitimate on Facebook and I bought it at first. Now I would like to think, I would like to think that I'm pretty good at diligently chasing down the source of a story and trying to verify it as best as possible. But I'll also acknowledge that there's certainly been instances where I've flipped through my Twitter feed and I've seen something from a writer I follow on Twitter and I just assume that it's true because this person has shared things that are true in the past. Mm -hmm. And so the extent to which we can handle that climate and the extent to which that we can find a way to make sure that the water doesn't get muddied like that, you know, I, I really, I'm not sure. I'm not sure to what extent we can do that. And I think that that's going to be one of the biggest questions and it's going to be one of the biggest challenges in new media. Yeah. Well, I think the thing you sort of have to do, I think uh, Julia Yaffe was, was brought up something important, which is that you kind of have to weaponize the truth. You kind of have to say, like, well, no, just like I don't trust Breitbart, I don't trust U.S. Uncut either. You know, just because 
inaccurate information confirms your biases doesn't mean it's acceptable and doesn't mean that you're not feeding into a culture of quote-unquote post-facts. Yeah. The only thing you can do is what you're talking about. You read carefully as much as you can, and when you can't, you look and you say, okay, this person I know presents the facts. They may have a bias, they may not, but ultimately the things that I'm getting are factually true. So that then when you don't have time, you go to them and you say, okay, what are they saying about this? Because, and this sort of goes into, I want to talk about how I actually think new media, quote unquote, could be a very good thing. Because with that sort of expansion of access that has sort of negative possibilities, there are also a great deal of positive ones. Uh, I actually point funny enough to uh, Grantland, the old sports and pop culture site from uh, ESPN. Because I think that they got footnotes and citation about as well as we're ever going to get them. What they would do is they would link directly onto a statement. They would link a little box that usually had some sort of clarification and then a source. And I think that these are the kind of tools we have to train ourselves to use. You know, if you see a piece of information that makes you kind of look askew, I think if we go to this model where the citation is in there, like right in the information, you look, you say, okay, this is what they're saying. You go to the source and then you see if it's believable. And, and yeah. I think that the internet and quote unquote new media, while it has given us kind of unprecedented pitfalls, I think it's also given us unprecedented opportunity. It's a lot easier for you to be your own fact checker now. You know, you're not just relying on, uh, you know, Dan Rather sitting behind a desk and telling you that what he's saying is true and it's been fact-checked by the relevant people, you can do a lot more of it yourself. It's just you have to kind of also educate yourself to be able to do it as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I something that I find really useful, it is remarkably easy, now, now more so than ever, than to see if there's a headline that says such and such politician says this. It's really easy to find video of that and find out to what extent it was taken in the proper context. And yeah, video, of- unedited transcripts, all those things. What I think is kind of interesting is I think that so much, so often Fox is kind of considered the engine of right wing of right wing media. But what I think is interesting is the extent to which that has shifted, mm-hmm. and that new media I think is going to pave the way for the new conservative identity. Uh, so, so something I want something I want to discuss like briefly is a great example I think is. Tom, it's it's Tommy Laren Tommy Laren Tommy, Tommy, Tommy Laren I think or Tommy yeah. Laren I don't know yeah it's it's Tommy yeah or or as Wale would call her Tammy, <laughs> Tammy. yes uh, so some something that I think that Tommy Laren has done to a really effective degree is she's is she's appealed to a new type of millennial conservative in a way that Fox News is incapable of because so much of Fox News his business model has thrived on appealing to an older demographic and the types of people who like can really consistently watch cable news but what Tommy Loren and I think some people like her and I think that people like her will become more prominent as we go along is she's appealed to people our age in a way by sort of, you know, the term that jumps to mind is a sort of respectability politics that's geared towards age demographics, where because the term millennial and all of the stereotypes associated with it have become so derisive in our culture, she has recognized, I think, that there's a lot of popularity and spotlight to be gained by being like, well, I'm not a millennial. I don't do any of these things. And if people want to be taken seriously, they need to stop being such a snowflake and be, you know, tough. I think what's also and, important to note, if I can jump in real quick. Yeah. yeah. Um, is that she is also feeding off of the sense that a lot of people have and a a struggle that that has been sort of in existence since things like generational kind of marking points have been in existence Mm -hmm. this unshakable feeling that you are the only person who doesn't doesn't conform to your generation's marking points you know that everybody else is a quote-unquote millennial but you know you and you know that's not what you're like right yeah and so what I think Tommy Laren has been able to do more so even than just like giving people an outlet to kind of rage against millennials in general, I think she's given the opportunity to 
conservative millennials who, to be fair, are largely blotted out. You know, a lot of millennial geared advertising goes towards a certain person. And there are there are places like um, diversity in terms of sex, race, uh, orientation, all those things that I think should be inarguable at this point. But there are points where we assume that millennials all shade on this left side. And I don't necessarily think that's true in a lot of cases. And what Tommy Lahren has been able to do is leverage the people who hear people talk about millennials and say, that's not me, I'm not like that. And given them a mouthpiece to say, you all are like this, I am not. Let me yeah. feel better by watching this young woman scream about you, despite not really having any like factual basis for it. You know, she's tapping into that sort of inherent anxiousness than people have about having labels affixed to them yeah and and so i i think that i think that sort of by bringing her up we're kind of presenting because you know you you just talked about how the internet could be used to create a new media culture where people can kind of be their own fact checkers in a way that they can't be with something like cnn so i think we've kind of presented two sort of doors that we could go through as a culture one where it's that positive side that you just described but also by talking about uh by talking about tommy tommy laren or tommy laren uh by by talking about tommy laren we've sort of outlined an example there's it's just a matter of time before we have a left a left version of that (laughs) who has who consolidates the type of following that she has but see this is the thing they don't really need it the the reason why tommy laren exists is not because she exists because she is young and she is conservative and that is a rarity i think the reason why you don't have a liberal version of of tommy laren is because basically everybody like let me walk that back like 60 percent of the millennial population is tommy laren for the left Mm mm-hmm yeah, and sure. like Tommy Lahren has taken, she is positioning herself as the lone conservative voice on social media, on in the sort of internet space generally, because it, it, there's such a saturation of liberal views. You look at sort of the skews of how who uses like Twitter, Facebook, etc. It skews yeah. very deeply blue, and so she, I think she exists because she is sort of that voice for people who have been voiceless in this certain situation yeah and i think that's why you don't if you had somebody from the left who is the same like a 25 year old who yelled about stuff from a liberal perspective people would think they were a blowhard because you already have like 10 other friends who are like smarter (laughs) and better researched and more eloquent than that person would be yeah all all of like like half of my friends are that person yeah Honestly, honestly, there's some some of my I think some of my I think some of my friends from work would no doubt say that I'm that person. <laughs> uh, I would like using the bully pulpit of our podcast. I would like to talk about somebody who I actually think gets new media very right, um, and that's Dylan Marin. Uh, forgive me, I don't know where he where he works, but uh, he he does these unboxing videos, right? Basically, what he does is he unboxes conceptual ideas. And it has that sort of sense. It's very conversational. It's very friendly, but it's also very well researched. And it isn't. It's not. It has a liberal bias, obviously. Um, but he also, you know, looked at um, the left. Uh, the left bubble. You know, he he is willing to kind of examine things in a harsh way, but package it in a way that is um, easy to digest and invites further search. Yeah. And I think he is sort of the blueprint, if we can kind of wrap up this, with the kind of blueprint for what I think would work in the quote-unquote new media age. And I look at BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed is an excellent example. Now, they've had their failings. You know, we can talk about the the Russia dossier and, and the sort of ethics of printing that in full. <laughs> Oh man, um, that that is that is quite a conversation to be yeah. had. By the way, by the <laughs> way, hold on. It's something that if we're talking about BuzzFeed, I do want to point out is uh, at the time that we're taking taping this podcast, BuzzFeed's front page. The first thing is after the caliphate. This is what's left behind when ISIS is defeated, and second in the feed, Chrissy Teigen accidentally dyed her hand green by eating too much Fun Dip. 
because 2017. But see, She's this the is the hero we need, but not the hero we deserve. This is exactly what I'm going to go into. It's perfect that you would say this. Yeah. Because I think what will make BuzzFeed work and what will make further organizations like them work is you generate trust with your base first and then you present information. BuzzFeed yeah. started as that fun friend who posted cute cat videos, right? Yeah. And then once they generated that credibility, they expanded it into news and they now can be that person who says, well, hey, John Wick was cool, but also did you hear about like John, uh, John Sessions, Jeff Sessions' confirmation? Yeah. And you yeah, are in there, like it is, that is a difficult topic with a lot of very controversial things inside of it. But if you hear it from somebody that you trust, like BuzzFeed, who you say, well, you know, they're fun. They, they relate to you on a one-to-one level. They're your friend in the form of a website. Yeah, but like that opens a door for you to trust the information that they give you more. And I think that what you see in the internet is that it is a trust economy that is once again rebuilding itself. I think this happened, yeah. we were too young. This happened with television media. This happened with uh, print journalism. And I think it's happening again. You're seeing this trust being built. It's not about being told what you want to hear. It's getting information from sources you trust that should be at a premium. Yeah, and, and it is and it is worth noting that, you know, back at the turn of the century or of the 20th century, like this exact same crisis of information and reporting was happening, but with newspapers like newspapers were saying completely insane stuff like we, we went yeah. to war. Yeah, we, we went to war with Spain because a newspaper basically told people to. No, this is something and, that I think we <laughs> we're arrogant enough to think that our problems are new. <laughs> Yeah. When in reality, look, one of the reasons why the internet is such a wild west in terms of uh, truth mm-hmm. is because it is incredibly young. It is it yeah. is twenty years, a little it's bit more. Than we are. Yeah, yeah, in in like day to day use. Look, the reality is when the printing press got invented, this exact thing happened. A bunch of people had access to a tool that gave them a much bigger mouthpiece than they had had previously, and it was abused for a very long time. People would just print off pamphlets with crazy information in it. And this was like <laughs> 500 years ago. Forgive me. I don't know exactly when the print it was, it was, was the, the It was the 1600s. Yeah. So it was like 400 years ago. This exact same thing happened. <laughs> like anytime you get access to a new tool that significantly increases your abilities, you're going to have a lot of people who abuse it. But the reality is we don't live in a world where everybody's publishing pamphlets all the time. Inevitably, it sort of fixes itself. I, I, it's... It sucks to say this, but to a certain extent, we just kind of have to ride this out and teach ourselves how to, quote unquote, internet responsibly. And not lose your mind. And I think that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And and so self-care is We act like this is, yeah, we act like this is sort of, well, this is, the internet has revolutionized facts and we live in a post-facts world because the internet just is too wide of a pipe. We can't control it all. That may be true, but what history bears out is that Oftentimes, that's not true. It takes a little while for people to take the training wheels off and learn how to use this well. And I think that yeah. happened in the at the turn of the century, too, with, with newspapers. Newspapers had to self-regulate. You know, there's a certain impatience that is unfair, given how young this information source is. Yeah, and um, so I guess the big question that I have, you know, I think going back to the point you made about BuzzFeed, I think was an excellent one where it can be really powerful to have a news source where they kind of, they make you feel like you can trust them and then they provide you with sort of information that might be considered too dry (laughs) to consume. I guess the question is, how committed is BuzzFeed and are sites like it to not abusing that trust and to avoid falling into the pitfall where you know our brand is that we're like people's friends and we make them comfortable so are they prepared to challenge the assumptions that a lot of their readers probably hold i i'm not sure and i think that that's a question that the answer to which will really affect their standing um a a great example as long as we're mentioning good practices i think cracked is a really good example of a website you know we mm-hmm. i've brought them up a lot uh, on this podcast but they're a really good example of something where they do the whole balance of like fun like pop culture things but they also do a really excellent job at some more factual stuff they've written some really great things about isis 
they just did a really effective and extremely well fact-checked podcast about Russia and about Putin's regime and how what lessons kind of can be taken to the state we're in now. Because again, like, again, I, I don't want to go overboard and compare Trump to Putin across the board, even though I, it's possible that he would see that comparison as a compliment. But there's no question that they both have a very fundamental skill, as Julia Yaffe noted, that is taking a media environment where there's so much distrust and uncertainty and using that chaos to their advantage. It sort of leads to, I think, my prevailing opinion on how we move forward in this. I think you're right that mistrust only begets more mistrust and only allows people like uh, Donald Trump or like the Breitbart crowd or like the U.S. Uncut crowd to further muddy the water and make it it weakens everybody you know mistrusting the right while trusting the left is not necessarily the answer the thing that you have to do is <laughs> as much as i hate to quote ronald reagan i think he got it right in this you have to trust but you have to verify you trust information at all times but you need to know why you're trusting that information and one thing that I, I sort of have been looking into because I've been kind of trying to figure out how to do that myself and I found something actually really cool that I think is an easy way to do this um, it's a website called Media Bias Fact Check uh, and what they do is basically they've compiled a comprehensive list of news sources across the spectrum uh, this is left, right, uh, online television, print, all of it and they say based on the stories they run, they have a bias one way or the other, or they're largely unbiased. Um, and there's also, they, they offer um, extensions, uh, browser extensions that allow you at a glance on your sort of social media feed to look at a story and it will tell you what the sort of bias history of that source is. And I think these are the things that we have to do to fight against this the sort of intrusion of bias into factual reporting. You know, we have yeah. to be we have to be honest about it and we have to accept no substitutes. And again, that is from both sides. Like you can't say Breitbart is awful and then only get your news from US uncut. That only or raw story. Yeah, that only perpetuates the problem. The thing that you have to do is like for us, we both love the Atlantic because yeah. we look and, and I and I feel like and I feel like such a pretentious like <laughs> But like the, so pretentious for it, but, but like the difference between it's great. But the difference it's between excellent. pretension and genuinely held belief is that we looked at the Atlantic and we said, okay, this is well sourced. This is largely unbiased. They do a good job of offering a, a conservative and a liberal viewpoint. And so we arrived at the decision to trust the Atlantic, not because it's the cool thing to do, but because we we sort of checked the boxes of what we value in in reporting. And that's kind of what you have to do for yourself. And for you, that may be The Atlantic. For you, that may be BBC. That may be Al Jazeera. That may be CNN. You know. And so that we'll we'll be left with a we'll be left with a great joke that I've seen. I don't know who originated this, but it was a remark that April Fool's Day is the one day a year where people question the validity of news articles before they read them. <laughs> And that's that's really funny, but it's a yeah. good point. Like, like maybe maybe we just need more April Fools in our life. No, uh, we've so, shown the capacity to do this. We just have yeah. to like train ourselves to do it. And so I think I think on that note, I think that we can climb down from our collective high horse. <laughs> that's right. And uh, and thank you to those of you who didn't turn off this podcast thirty five minutes ago. Uh, we thank you for sticking with us. Yeah. No, uh, it, it's important for us to discuss this, like with the knowledge important. that we're both we both have as much work to do in this as everybody else. But I do think that it's we can't move forward in the way we've been going, because if we do, we're going to be in a world where we don't know what's true or what's not. And that's a very yeah. scary place to be. But I think we are not as inevitably going down that road as I think a lot of people think we are. And that's sort of the important thing to take away, I think. Yeah, we, we have a choice. And, and, as, and as corrosive and as corrosive as our, as our culture can get, 
there are there are still sources of good truthful mm-hmm. reporting everywhere and and it just it takes a certain degree of attention and focus to look for that so so i guess that that seems like as good a place as any to leave off mm-hmm. um yeah i i'm i'm glad that we took took a nice uh, 75 minute chunk out of the day to fix uh, the news industry yeah so we're congratulations we bro bro we did it mission accomplished. congratulations america we fixed yeah. news so uh why don't you tell people where they can find more of the versus podcast yeah you can uh search us on itunes the versus podcast uh hopefully the that's working now if you can't find us there go to our twitter it's now um versus podcast one and you can click the link that'll get you to itunes or stitcher or soundcloud or wherever you get podcasts uh if you want to send us an email with uh, a conversation topic that we can use maybe on the show uh email us at hey vs pod at gmail.com that's h-e-y v-s p-o-d at gmail.com uh and we'd love to hear from you you know if you have thoughts about the show or yeah you have like a topic you want us to dial uh delve into we're gonna turn this into a monthly podcast for now we're both kind of juggling a lot of stuff right now but we're definitely going to try to make sure we get it out at least once a month um and yeah we'll we'll link a couple of things um i'll link that media bias fact check into the description of the podcast but otherwise yeah just hit us up on twitter uh or via email we'd love to hear from you and uh thanks so much for listening yeah and he's not in office anymore but i'm gonna say it anyway that's all we got Thanks, Obama. That's right. This is our first post-Obama podcast. No, that's our thing now. This is all staying in the episode, too.